The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And happy birthday to my dad, the baby-faced assassin, Ted Irvin. And to celebrate his big day, we got him back on Talk is Jericho to talk hockey. More specifically, the 1972 Stanley Cup playoffs. What a run. Teddy went all the way to the Stanley Cup finals with the New York Rangers. We're going to hear about that before we get there, though. We're going to talk about Duff McKagan and the much-anticipated joke. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. I uh, hope you're doing well. hope everybody listening is doing well. You know, uh, listen, I saw a woman the other day. Uh, she had 12 boobs. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Yay! Thank you. Doesn't it? Come on. That's a good one. Uh, that can only come from the mind of Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Duff McKagan. Check out his solo record. Uh, it's a great uh, Christmas gift right now. But like I mentioned, my dad, the great Ted Irvin, returns to the show today to talk more hockey. This time, we get into a very specific career moment for him, probably his biggest career moment, at least as a part of the New York Rangers. The 1972, uh, 71-72 season with the New York Rangers when they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals and lost in six games to the Boston Bruins, four games to two. The Ranger roster that year was stellar, one of the greatest hockey teams of all time, including goalie Eddie Jackman, Bruce McGregor, Billy Fairburn, Rod Gilbert, Brad Park, Jean Rattel, Rod Sealing, Pete Stemkowski, Walt Kachuk, Bobby Russo, Vic Hadfield was the team captain, uh, Gilles Villemur was the backup goalie who also won 24 games that year. What a squad they had. But they took on the Boston team that had both Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito, amongst many, many others. We break down each game from the preparation to the scoring to the fights to the crowd reactions. Teddy also shares the story about being traded from the L.A. Kings to the New York Rangers, rooming with Billy Fairburn, negotiating his own hockey contract with Coach Emil Francis, a uh, Irvin negotiation tradition that lived on when I negotiated my first WCW contract with Eric Bischoff. He's talking about uh, living on Long Island, driving into Madison Square Garden, living in New York City, ingratiating himself with the New York roster. Uh, he talks about the New York hockey fans and how it was to win them over, how huge New York uh, is for sports and hockey. And he explains what it was really like to play against the legendary Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito. He also makes a case for why Orr could be considered the greatest to ever play the game, especially given all that he did to change the way he's played. Talks about beating Chicago 
beating the Montreal Canadiens. Such a great time for hockey and a great time for my dad, Teddy Irvin. He's returning to celebrate his uh, birthday with some great memories and an in-depth look at the 1972 Stanley Cup Final Series between the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins. And it starts right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho. So what I was thinking of doing is maybe, uh, I mean, we could talk about whatever, but maybe focusing a little bit more on the the 71-72 season where you guys went to the Stanley Cup Finals. Okay. We can kind of just maybe focus on that for a bit and then just wherever it goes, it goes. Because I don't think we've ever really delved into that too much before. Okay. What, did you get some notes? You know me better than that. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, after your uh, your show, Juan and I were driving to Winnipeg, and we listened to the show about the three matches you had, eh? Mm-hmm. And it was really, really informative. And it brought back memories for me of all the people that you knew. I wouldn't know those wrestlers, but you sure knew them. Mm-hmm. They were part of your life, eh? So when I got home, I said, do you know a lot about your past? I don't follow all my past. Eh? So I started getting on the computer and looking what's in there now about me with L.A. and New York. And uh, it was fascinating of stuff I could remember and stuff I never knew about. Like what, what kind of stuff did you find out? Like, what, like give me some examples. Well, uh the uh, I looked New York Rangers highest scoring game 12 1 1971 72 I believe against California Seals 12 1 I got two goals and assists and who set me up was Gene Carr the new kid in town <laughs> and then I said well when I scored that overtime goal you were talking about how Dave Meltzer sometimes likes the bout, sometimes doesn't, but you got your opinion. So I read about the goal I scored, and it said very clearly it was a trash goal scored by Irvin. <laughs> Although he was the leading scorer, he got five goals and one assist in that series. I go, I didn't know that. <laughs> Just, And then we won the Vesna Trophy with Eddie Jackman and, and, Jack, and uh, Villamere. Mm. which is really quite an honor as a team award, you know, the lowest goals. And, uh, and that was interesting to me. And then there was nine, one game, nine New York Rangers one year had nine 20 goal scorers and I'm one of them. Oh, wow. So all that stuff. I'm saying, I didn't know that. And it was kind of funny. And uh, so then I stemmed Kowski, the overtime goal where I set it up from the corner. Well, the overtime goal I got in Oakland, I shot from the corner and hit Gary Smith in the shoulder and went in. So I got two corner shots. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but, but 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 let's go back and go through a few of those. So um, when you're talking about the Vesna Trophy, and that's that's the award for the best the best goalie in the league, your best defensive team in the league, the lowest goals against. Okay, the lowest goals against as a team. Yeah, so we had Eddie Jackman and Villamere. They were under 200 goals, so they won the Vesna for the best goaltenders with the lowest goals on the team against. Last year, Boston, that Allmark was 178 for the year, the whole team. So you take great pride in that as a team, the fact that everybody kind of played together to protect the goalie and keep the goals down. That's right. Because, you know, goaltenders, you try to get a shelter for them. Well, if they get one, well, sorry, but... Uh, you care what you don't care type thing. Right. When I look back at us. That's, that's quite a team effort, and we should be proud of that as a team. And I forgot about all that. So I'm just looking here. What you mentioned about the the goal scorers, 20 goal scorers, uh, 1973-74 season. You had eight 20 goal scorers on the same team, which is amazing. Because I remember when the Winnipeg Jets had six, like probably in 1990 or so. But here, here here's your list of uh, of the of, of the 20 goal scorers: Brad Park. Jean Rattel, 
Pete Stemkowski, Rod Gilbert, Steve Vickers, Vic Hadfield, Walt Kachuk, Ted Irvin. Amazing, eh? That's amazing. Isn't that nice company? <laughs> I never knew that. I forgot about that. No, that's then that's that's good. Yeah, no, <laughs> done good then. I mean, that's that, out of out of in NHL history. That's number fifteen. The most ever was the Boston Bruins had eleven exactly in nineteen seventy eight, and then it goes down. But for pretty much eleven, ten, nine, and eight, so you guys are right up near the one of the best you know squads ever, and having that many twenty goal scorers. So how do you have that many twenty goal scorers on the team? Obviously, that much depth, but yet still didn't make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. It's amazing. I can't hear you. The uh, sound went down. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, we didn't make it to the finals and that. And you think about that, too. You had the gag line there who got most of the power plays. So that would be your, your top scoring line? Yeah, they'd be so I didn't get that much ice time. So I have the 20. I mean, it, nowadays, I don't think 20 is something to target to shoot for. I think guys like it. But nowadays, I think 25 or 50 is what you'd want as a, as a good player. But in the, the old days, your target was if you could ever get 20 goals, you had a heck of a year. And I think I've told you that story. That was the year Emil Francis when I had the big year. And uh, I went to renegotiate, and he gave me a good contract. And at the end, I said, I'd like a goal-scoring bonus. And he said, I'll give you another $1,000 in your contract. I said, no, no, I want a goal-scoring bonus for 20 goals. He said, take the 1000 <laughs> <laughs> even, even that, just talking, obviously we're talking, you know, old-time hockey here that, that, that Teddy Irvin went through. But the fact that you negotiated yourself, like nowadays you wouldn't be anywhere near that room. You'd have an agent, and you'd have a lawyer, and you'd have a representative. But then you would just walk in on your own and, and negotiate your own contract yeah you're scared stiff because uh, uh some coaches would just say you know forget it and the, the beautiful thing about my story was and i know you you've heard it before i had a big year with the rangers that previous year and that's where i won the players player award for which i'm really again i just found on the internet chris there's a picture of me with that award somebody giving it to me in the center ice at uh, madison square garden at the awards night for the rangers i'm going to try to buy it and uh but anyhow, I had another year left on my contract. Uh -huh. and that's what's so beautiful about that. I still was going to make 19500 And at training camp, I went and saw Emil Francis and said, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, what about? I said, about renegotiating my contract. And uh, he just said, no, Teddy, you've got another year in your contract, nineteen five. I said, well, I know what the other guys are making. He says, Ted, you are under contract. And he was not friendly to me at all. And he just said, uh, what would you do if you couldn't play hockey? He said, I got a standing offer from Investor Syndicate. He reached over the table, shook my hand, said, well, good luck. They're a good company to work for. Jeez. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> I, my mouth dropped, and he started to laugh. And, yeah, I was on my own. I had nobody to negotiate. I had never heard of anybody at that time. I think Brad Park might have had a lawyer. I didn't. Certainly Billy Ferrer and my roommate didn't have any. Wow. And that's what Emil said. Well, Neil Francis said, what do you think you're worth? I said, 25000 for the next two years. He says, wow. He said, nineteen five to twenty five. He says, that's a lot of money, Teddy. And I said, yes, I appreciate it. And he said, well, you know what? You've done well for us, Ted, and we do appreciate you. We are going to renegotiate. And I was so proud of myself. He said, we're going to give you 27500 And I walked out of the room, phoned your mom, and I said, I think I did something wrong. I think I was supposed to ask for 30, and then they offered me 27.5. <laughs> I'll never forget 
that is a lot of how honest he was with us. And he was a gentleman and very good to all us players. And when the WHA came in, he made sure we all stayed. We really didn't need lawyers at that time. But now these kids have lawyers. I just talked to our friend Brent Sutter, said to say hello to you. The kids at 14 or 15 have family lawyers now. It's crazy business. But it reminds me, yeah, it's a great story. When I had my first meeting with Bischoff, and uh, he asked me what I wanted. And I said, I couldn't even believe I was saying the words $100,000 a year. I was, I said, 100,000. He goes, I'll give you 165. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And I think, uh, I think, you know, he gave me 135 and 165 the next year. I think I walked out and said the same thing. I should have asked for 250. He would have given me three. Who knows? Oh, I'm so <laughs> proud. I'm so proud because I know you got my carpentry <laughs> yeah. skills and you got my negotiating skills yeah. <laughs> too. <laughs> A little different today, though. <laughs> so uh, let's go back to this. I looked it up 1977, but it wasn't because it's you're with the Rangers, but it's the press photo. Right. Ted Irvin, uh, Rangers Player of the Year Award. So what exactly is this award? You got you got the Player of the Year for the New York Rangers? Voted by the players. Wow. That's why it made it so special. And that night of the game, I had the flu, and Emil came in and said, you're not playing tonight, but you got a dress. And then they have the awards like they do now on the ice for all the players, you know, this player award, that player award. And when they announce the Players Player Award, voted by my teammates and now you're talking you know Rattel, park jackman they voted for me as the guy in the team that uh, i don't know what it was for <laughs> they respected or i did something i did a lot of fighting that year i don't know what it was and i forgot about the i have a, a plaque in my office i've never seen that award a picture wow. of that and i don't know who the gentleman is but it was at center ice and yeah a special time again that was april 7th 1974 wow and you're receiving the players player award from harold w mcgraw jr president of the west side association of commerce from new york i i imagine yeah yeah there was two awards that year <laughs> and that one all goes in conjunction with the media give me the good guy award for working with the media and who won it for the New York Islanders? A big luncheon downtown, Dennis Potvin. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was high stuff. And the guy who was instrumental behind all that stuff is a guy named John Helligan, who was our public relations guy. It was with the Rangers for 20 years or so. And he published the book, The Top 100 Rangers. Mm. And I looked at that again. I was voted number 74. I didn't realize there's 900 players had a Ranger jersey on. That's amazing. Yeah, you're top 10, top 10%. Yeah, and you know who has one vote ahead of? Who? Jeremy Yeager. <laughs> what a floater he was. <laughs> who, 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 did you look and see who the top Ranger was? No, it was only important to me. I didn't come with <laughs> He didn't have to look at it all up. Who would you think the top Ranger would be in, in history of the team? Messier? He would be now. When I played, it was, you know, Joe Bears. No, you had Andy Bathgate was up there, Harry Howell. Um, some other guys in there, Messi would have been because of his... Uh, For the modern era. Standard. Yeah, the modern era. Yeah. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
So when you first showed up on the Rangers squad, which was probably, was it 69? Oh, wait, 70, 69? What was the first year you played there? 69, 70, yeah, January. Who were the the, the vets there? Because you mentioned, you know, Andy Bathgate and those type of guys. Were any of those old-time hockey players there at that point in time? Or was it basically the more the newer generation, like your generation? It was guys? more the generation. The Orland Curtin back was there. And I can't remember all the guys. I, I looked it all up. Uh, but at that time, it was Vic Hadfield and John Rattel, Joe Bear, Bobby Nevin would be there, Ronnie Stewart from the old – my first line was Ron Stewart and uh, Bobby Nevin in Detroit against Cordia. And uh, so that would – but yeah, that would be the guys there. It would be Jackman was in goal. I, I can't remember them all at this time. Right, right, right. But that would be like the roster that was there at that point in time. Yes. Gotcha. So um, – did you have pretty good chemistry right out of the gate with the guys? Because I know you came from L.A. Obviously, you were drafted by the L.A. Kings. But then you show up in, in New York, and then, you know, here you are, like we said, a year later, you guys are in the Stanley Cup Finals. But that first year, chemistry is so important. Tell me some of the, the memories that you have with, uh, with with the guys on the team in in those early years before you guys really started to gel to go to the Stanley Cup Final. Well, to go to Los Angeles, we were – the expansion team, we didn't know much about the National Hockey League, although we had the number one, one of the number one Hall of Fame goaltenders, Terry Suchuk. He was our only veteran guy. So we were just a bunch of guys. Then when I get traded, I go to New York Rangers, which is the original six. Right. Scared the living daylights out of me. And I got traded in Detroit. I traded in Toronto, and I had to take a bus over to Detroit to play that night. And uh, when you first get there, the two scouts meet with you, scare the heck out of you, don't do this, don't do that. Then I had to meet Emil Francis, a little wee guy. How much money you got in your pocket? I said, 25 bucks. Said, Here's 100. You can't go to New York without uh, any extra money. How many suits you have? I don't. I have a sports jacket and slacks. Here's another 100. Go buy a suit. I'm going, I'm feeling pretty good. My first roommate was Billy Fairburn, mm-hmm. a lifelong friend. At that time, his nickname was Augie Doggy. Never said a word to anybody. <laughs> I walked in a room and I got traded for Yuhai Weeding, who is his friend that played together in junior in Brandon. Billy never said a word to me. Got down, you're playing tonight. You're playing with Bob Nevin and Ron Stewart. Skate out in the old Olympia. They play me starting lineup against Gordy Howe. Wow. Scared stiff, yes. Where, and where is this? What city is this? Detroit? Yeah. That game, Gordy knocks out two of my contact lenses at the blue line. And the trainer sees them both. I'm scared. Gordy runs over me over and over again, elbows and everything else. We lose the game, and they put me with Stewart and Nevin. After the game, I know you go to the bus. Normally, your veterans sit at the back of the bus at those days because they would be able to have a beer. The rookies sat up close because the coach could hear you drinking, and even when you cough when you pop the can. The beer can. <laughs> and I knew one of one guy on that team, and it was L. Hamilton, from Flin Flon, Manitoba. I knew him through the Kluchuk family, your family, your grandparents. I sat beside him, and Al was one of the go-to guys on the team as a young guy that everybody liked, the veterans. So sitting with him, first thing he said to me, wasn't a low, good game. How's your, how's your contact lenses? Do you want a beer? And so I knew I was in a little bit. And then we drank beer, got to the airport, now I'm room with Billy Fairburn, get downtown New York. In those days, when you played on the road, we played in Detroit, and we had to fly back to uh, New York 
and we weren't allowed to go home. We had to stay downtown New York because of traffic for the next day. I'm room with Billy Fairburn in an old hotel. We get up to the room. He finally says hello to me and says, you want to go for a beer? I said, Billy, it's one o'clock in the morning. He said, so what? We just flew in. Emil doesn't mind if we relax. So I meet him and Walt Kachuk. And we go to a bar called McCann's Bar. Two, three of us sitting there talking fishing for about another hour and three or four or five beers. After that point, I knew I was in hmm. because Billy took me under his wing. Walter was a good guy, very close to Brad, who was very close to Eddie. So that night of the game, when I went down to meet the guys, their suits and sports coats were worth more of my first year's salary. That intimidated Ron Stewart. These guys had Vic Hadville, they had Jimmy Nielsen. They dress. They said, "Kid, where do you, where did you get your clothes?" And I was buying at Macy's. And these guys all had their own uh, tailor people. They suits. So anyhow, that's how I started getting going. And I had to stay downtown New York because all the other guys lived out on the island, Long Island, and we had to go out to Long Island to practice. The only two guys who were allowed to live downtown New York was Bob Nevin and and Rod Gilbert. And they were the swingers at that time and hanging around with Joe Pepitone and all these other guys and, and Namath and all these guys. They had to pick me up every day to drive me out to practice. And after I went with them, I had to go with them for lunch. And they knew every hot spot in town for lunch. They knew every mafia joint to go for lunch. We all got free lunches. And so I, and every time they went out at night, I said, kid, you want to come with us? And I said, sure. So I got to be with the guys right away. They treated me so well. And then when your mom came out, they had a house for me, for us, and they moved us in out there. But for me living downtown, hanging out with the veterans like that, I got to meet all the players. And because I was hanging around with the big guys, uh, I was welcomed. That's amazing. Uh, quickly, how did Gordie Howe knock out your contacts? Well, I think you have the better story about Gordie Howe <laughs> when you showed him. When you tell the story, didn't you show him new elbow pads you had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played an all-star game uh, in L.A., and I had a brand-new pair of elbow pads, and uh, he was like the honorary coach. And you look at the elbow pads, and said, those are nice new elbow pads. You know what's missing out of them? Teeth marks. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so quick with them because all I ever knew about was reading about him in the paper. He blinked all the time. He had no neck, and he was strong. And my first shift against them in old days, you had to go up and down your wing. You couldn't go into the ice and you couldn't fly over the place. And so when I was the right, I was the left winger, he was right winger. The puck went in his corner. I got to pick him up. You got to keep him against the boards. And I'm skating down the middle of the ice. And he got the puck and he stick handled with one hand down the wing, one hand. And he hooked my, my right arm with his left hand, stick handled from center ice right around the net with me on him and he took a shot whistle went i got two minutes for holding i remember saying to bruce hood i said what's going on? i said kid we can't catch him i said well, he dragged me all down the ice he said, we knew that but we can't catch him <laughs> and then when i played in my first game in la terry sawchuk their teammates him and gordy said to me kid watch out for gordy Howe. he's the dirtiest hockey player in the world who do i start against at that time i felt 175 gordy Howe in the la forum and he's sweating. He looks up at me, and he's blinking. He's got no neck. And he looks at me and said, Jesus Christ, kid, is it ever hot in here? It would be nice to go for a cold bubbly after the game. And I looked at him, and I said, yes, it would. Wacko. 
right in the head after the period. Terry Sawchuk said to me, I told you, stay away from that old butter. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, man. It's so funny, like, to think, like, you know, the legend of Gordie Howe or something like that. It's like, you know, the legend of, I don't know, being in the ring with, like, Haku or something where you're like, this guy can totally murder me. But yet I have to still show him what I've got, you know, playing against those guys must have been quite intimidating for such a young guy your age playing against those types of guys. No doubt about it. And what scared you more, because that time we didn't have the internet and TVs like you did. Boston Bruins brought up a guy to play against uh, Detroit. And the guy was Derek Sanderson. It was 175 pounds, first year out of junior. In warm-up. He went up to one of the meanest, toughest guys in hockey, stuck his stick in Gordy's face and said, you come close to me, old bastard, I'll poke your eye out. Jeez. Well, that ran through the league like you wouldn't believe. Stay away from the Sanderson. And remember when we played against him, he was a peanut, you know? And I'm going, but he was he was that good with a stick. And that kept Gordy away. We kept a lot of guys away from Turk for a lot of years until he got uh, with the drugs and alcohol. He couldn't right. defend himself anymore. But that's how the game was back then. Like now, it's 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 so not like that. But back then, it was almost like like a prison mentality. You got to stake your claim right out of the gate so that no one messes with you. Uh, and then you kind of develop a reputation around the entire league. I know you had one for sure for being someone that, that you didn't want to mess with. Well, you, you got it right because nobody's going to protect you. You had to do it on your own. Now it's a gang mentality, which is great. When I got called in New York, one of the guys there was Orland Curtin back, one of the toughest guys, a good fighter, went to Vancouver in the trade. And I sat before Slatham in New York. And when we got when we got uh, next season, he came back into Madison Square Garden and they cheered him like you wouldn't believe. And I was on the ice. And I My first year, I, when I got traded, I got no goals at all. The stupidest trade ever. <laughs> and uh, that first game when Kurt came out, everybody cheered for him. And I knew uh, I had to run him. So I ran him, put him halfway over the boards. People turned and cheered for me, turned my life around in New York. Hmm. After the game, he came up to me, said, Teddy, I let you away with that one. I knew you had to get a reputation. I let you have that. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you had to earn your right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you mentioned, uh, you know, hanging out when you were living down, down in New York City, downtown, and kind of, you know, getting in with the guys, I mean, that's a very wrestling thing, too, where you have to show the guys that you're cool, and if you show them that you're cool, then they'll want to hang out with you and help you out and that sort of a thing. So what was the hierarchy of the team like when you first got there? Obviously you mentioned that you hung out with, with Bill Fairburn at first and Walkachuk, which then led you to park, which led you to Jackman. Like were those guys kind of the top of the food chain locker room leaders at that point? When I first got there, Bobby Nevin, who's uh, was, came from Toronto, he was our captain and he was one of our better captains because he was not afraid to go to our bosses, Emil Francis, and the owners and talk about what's going right or wrong on the team. But who was the, the guys? It was Rod Bear. He was Mr. Hockey. He was downtown. He was the playboy. Well, you would know that. He kissed Jessica's hands more yeah. than anybody else in yeah. hockey. He's just a classy, classy guy. Everybody knew him. And he treated us so darn good, our family and me. So 
what you got with him, John Rattel was high quality, but he wasn't uh, a go-to guy. He was more, uh, he stayed on his own because of faith and everything else. Vic was good. So I would say it was Vic, Eddie a little bit. Brad Park was second in line because he was the young up-and-coming star. Uh, John, uh, the uh, Larry Brooks just did a great article the other day. Why isn't uh, Brad in sweater hanging in Madison Square Garden or Boston's a travesty? And but Brad was that honored. So, so when I hung with Billy, who hung with Walter, who hung with Brad, that was the guys I went with all the time. You had Vic and Rod, Glenn Sather, Bruce McGregor. They went in a different direction. Okay, then you had the the little crazier guys. Jimmy Nielsen, Dale Rolfe, they were a different crowd. They would go in a different direction. So we were very close in the dressing room, but after we had about three or four groups that we all split off and went different places. Let's talk about playing in New York for a bit because New York, you know, and and, and I know it too from, from wrestling in WWF and WWE for so long. It is such a huge media center. Uh, when you play in New York, there's a spotlight there that's, that's different from playing in any other city with the exception of probably LA, which you played in as well. But I know hockey was just fairly new there. So, what was the difference for you coming to New York with such a, a huge, like we said, such a media umbrella and so much of a focus on hockey and on the Rangers in that city in comparison to, let's say, L.A., where it was not a lot of focus on it? It was the loyalty and the ra how rabid they were. Like before a game, we'd come out of the hotel with the old pen guard. The fans outside, they're all over the place. You couldn't hardly get over to the Madison Square Garden to skate on the ice. They just roared. Like, you know, the building is, you know, seventh floor, the ninth floor, the fans go straight up. But the thing about New York was they knew their hockey and they let you know. Okay. First shift I had, fans came right down the boards over the glass and they just said, Hey, Irvin, you bum, why don't you go after Schultz? Those are my own fans. Okay. <laughs> and you just got used to it and you had to fight your way through it. You had to do that. So after, they would be on your side. So I found they knew the game of hockey. Okay. They hound you, they held you accountable. And then the one thing about being an athlete, and you would know it too, you've wrestled all over the world. When you walk into Madison Square Garden, you have to go to another level. It just in you, the adrenaline starts running. You're for some reason, the Montreal Canadiens might do the same thing, but I know Madison Square Garden, when you walked in that rink, it was showtime. I mean, I remember going to the Mohammed. Ali, a Fraser fight. I mean, I'm in the garden. I mean, it is showtime. And the basketballs, the Knicks played the same time as we did. They played in the afternoon. We played at night. They took the, they took the boards off the ice. It was showtime. Players all couldn't get away with a phony night. You couldn't take a night off because the fans would pick you up right away. So that was what I found right away. You've got to go to another level. After the game, fans were always rewarding to you. But where I found it more interesting than anywhere else, Chris, is when you went on the road, because the Big Apple is the Big Apple. And we went into, whether it be L.A. or if you went into St. Louis or Vancouver, the town got up for New York Rangers and the players. Mm -hmm. So when you went on the road, it wasn't a night off. Let's just play kitty uh, block the door. They were coming after you. So you had to go to another level that night, too. Mm -hmm. So it made you a better hockey player. And I believe well, it was because of the New York atmosphere. And to this day, to go back there, 
I mean, it's just a pleasure. They treat you with respect. They still got, they can still tell you, hey, Irvin, you're bum. But yeah, you knew you had to work. So I found playing there was a real honor. And it was a downside to my career too. You know, I loved it so much there. I loved the team. I loved the role they had for me. I loved the persona. Uh, uh, one of your friends in New York says, hey, Teddy, you're a bigger shot. When I went to St. Louis, good guys, it just wasn't the same atmosphere. So it was a whole everything. Even to practice. We used to have that in those days, 500 to 1,000 people at a practice. Jeez. Nowadays, that's common. In those days, no way. And they watched you. And they weren't afraid to get in your face. And so they held you accountable. And you had to play to another level, which is a real honor. Because sometimes you flatline, you only go so high, you just don't have it. When you're in New York, you just know, uh-oh. These guys have picked up and that was a bad shift, you know? So that was the honor of playing there, taking accountability for yourself. But what an honor to go to another level. Not every athlete can go to another level. And, and just, you're saying just by having a New York Rangers jersey on, that took you to the next level because no matter where you went, they were gunning for the Rangers, whether it was Dallas or Detroit or, or not that there was Dallas at the time, but you know what I mean? Like any other team you went to, if the Rangers came to town, they would be playing their top game too. Top game. And even when you practice, the ice managers and the rink managers, they'd turn off the lights on you. The ice would be terrible. They, they were going <laughs> to get in with you too, you know. And on the road, we as a team hung together because we just knew. I remember we went to Atlanta. That's when the FBI first got involved with all sports, and they used to meet with us. And they, we went to Atlanta. They'd have a team meet. So look at you, New York Rangers. They do not like you. And we laughed. They said, do not laugh. Do not go to this bar, that bar. Do not go here. And we thought it was funny until after we went outside, we realized we can't go anywhere because those guys just don't like us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, so let me ask you this. When you guys went to the garden, was there a team bus that would drop you off at the entrance? Or did, like for us, when we were working there with WWE, I've probably been there, I don't know, 50 times. You would have to park across the street in the parking garage, get on the elevator, go up to the to the ground floor, walk across the street through literally hundreds and hundreds of fans to get through the front door. And I remember the very first time I worked at Madison Square Garden, I showed up at the loading dock and I go, uh, the guy's like, yeah. I'm like, hey, I'm here with uh, WWF. He's like, and? Um, well, do I park inside? He goes, Mick Jagger doesn't even park inside the garden. Go across the street. <laughs> <laughs> that was his well, line. So right. <laughs> but you see, that was the other thing about it. It was you were part of the New Yorkers, like the hotel we stayed at and that parking lot. When we went to the game, we knew the game was at seven. We tried to get there at 435. And the people were lined up and you had to go across the street, up the elevator, down to the other elevator, up to the top. Right. So you were right in the crowd all the time. And and they let you know. And then they were pushing you too, you know. And they had their sweaters on, but we always went in groups. We said, okay, when are you going? We try to, some guys went very early just to beat the crowd, but you no, we didn't have any bus whatsoever. There's no such thing at that time. You would just get there like with a taxi or whatever and have to do the same thing that we had to do or drive your car and park it across the street sort of thing. Exactly. When we played, when we lived in the island, we had to drive there. So two or three of those players would drive and the wives would come in later. We'd park at the parking lot and walk across the street that <laughs> on the way out though after the game. After the game, now you got to go with your families down to your car because the wives would have to park in that parking lot. Yeah. And they would, you couldn't get out of that parking lot, very Crazy. small parking lot. And if you won, they loved you. And if they lost, they hated you. 
they're mad. They're all going to show up. And, you know, some days they're getting your autograph. Other you're bum. You know, you're part of it. And you had to hang on to your family because it was just that crazy. We had that experience with you at WWE when you told me, come on, Dad, you got to run across the street from the parking lot. we got to go in the side door. And then the crowds are all there. You know, I got my luggage. I got to get through there. And I always remember it. That the sea parted just like the Bible. Here comes Jericho. All the fans just moved all the way. And I go, wow, my kid is really powerful. But there's another, as you know, there's another part of the story to that. Remember that? The president of the Hells Angels was got in front of him, walked in. Everybody was scared of him. And they all moved aside for him. We walked behind him. Yeah, Chuck, whatever uh, <laughs> Chuck's name was, yeah. <laughs> well, what I used to do, finally, the last few times I was there, is you'd park, like most of the guys would park across the street, and the whole crowd would be watching kind of the parking area, like looking this way. <laughs> so I would, finally, I figured out, take like a, a taxi or get a car, and then get out kind of on the other side of the garden, and then you can kind of sneak around while everybody's looking like to their right, you just sneak into the left, and by the time they realize that it's you, you've already ran across the uh, <laughs> their, their line of view to, to get out of there. Let me just look up uh, Chuck. And I don't know how many other buildings are like that, Chris. I don't know how many other buildings are like that. You know, Montreal is wild. Chicago is wild, but we took a bus in there because there was an old building and uh, you couldn't park outside. Uh, but New York's one of the few buildings where I remember walking in. Philadelphia, we had to take the bus underneath the spectrum because the fans would rock your bus. Uh, but that's one of the few garden that square of all buildings you had to walk through the fans. Yeah, yeah. No, Chuck Zito was the, uh, the okay. guy we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about the the, the big year that you had. Obviously, you had some great years at the Rangers, but as a team, the 71-72 season was the biggest that you had. You guys made it to the Stanley Cup Finals, lost to Boston four games to two. But let's talk about that whole season. Um, did you know uh, when you first started, did you guys have great chemistry right out of the gate and, you know, September, October, November to think we got a chance to go all the way with this team? Or was it something that developed over the year? No, at that time, Emil built the club he wanted. We knew at the beginning, right in training camp, that we had the guys prepared to do anything. Our goaltenders were fighters. Uh, Eddie Jackman, he tangled anybody. He wanted to win so bad. Our defense was led by Brad. We had Chiefy Cat. Dale Rolfe was there now. Two big guys that could skate. And then we had we had four lines, which was really unique. Three that played a lot. And in those days, to have three solid lines with different job descriptions was unique. Because that's, I think, today in hockey, you need four lines. But they, they all got to contribute. You just can't throw them out once in a while. So the three lines that we had... I believe with the defensive coring we had, and Brad was like a Bobby Orr. Brad could bring the puck up ice like nobody else. Eh? And that was ch- uh, strange in the old days. A lot of times defensive weren't bringing the puck up the ice because they couldn't get back quick enough. So we had good goaltending. We had big, tall defensemen. We had a good system. We had a want. And then you had you know, Jean Rattel and Rod and Vic 
you had a good combination. Vic was tough as nails. Rod was classy. Johnny was, you know, Mr. Hockey. Good line, playing all important things, score key goals, and we knew it. Then you had Walt Kachuk and Vickers and Billy Fairburn, the Bulldog line. Like Billy and, uh, you know, Walter, Mel Francis always said, hockey's the only game you can't run out of bounds. Those two guys, Billy Fairburn must have been hit 10,000 times a game into the boards. His specialty was he was just going to take the puck. So he was a grinder. Walter was a grinder. Walter is one of those guys like Sidney Crosby today. His his trunk of his body was all weight. And when he hit you, he just about killed you. And then Steve Vickers was a just a great guy, could score goals. We call him 3.2. He stood in front of the net. He let Billy and Walter work their buns off. Sarge would score and a good fighter. Then we're lucky. I ended up with Bruce McGregor, who'd come in from Detroit, Stemmer, who'd come in from Toronto and Detroit, and myself, and we hit it off. We were a responsible defensive line, and we could play the body. And uh, not so much Murdoch, but uh, Stemmer and myself. Then you threw in a couple other guys after that. We had Bobby Russo from the Montreal Canadiens would come in to play. Then we had some young guys like Gene Carr would come up and Jack Eagers and then some of the other guys. So our first three lines could play all circumstances all the time. So we had a good rounding team. The biggest thing about the Rangers was they would try to run you out of the building, but we had a club at that time that we could handle ourselves. And all the guys participated, and the biggest thing with any team is you participated with everybody. Hmm. If Rod Sealing got into trouble, you helped him out because every team would try to pick out in your weak link. And we played Boston. You know, Boston Bruins said, let's hit Sealing. And we knew we had to jump in right away. Okay? That made us a close team. Emil Francis believed in us, and we knew that, and that helped a lot because we knew that he was on our side. What he did, he implemented 10-game series. So many points will give you so many dollars. How many points can you get? So we had mini-series all along. You've seen it in basketball today. They're playing a mini-series during the year. So we had goals. We had the fan support, and we were close team. I mean, to this day, we still talk a lot to each other and been down a couple times with sweater hanging. Guys go right back. We were lucky. But our keys were Jean Rattel because Johnny was just one of those guys that didn't say much, but, boy, he could get the point, he could get the goal, he'd get the assist. And in the dressing room, he was just one of the most classiest guys ever. So, no, we had knew we had a chance that year. We knew Boston was, was the start, you know, kind of like the Philadelphia. They were going to run us. Mm-hmm. But we hung in there pretty good. So on the road – when we, during the year, it was always a battle. Kenny Hodge, Stemkowski, two big men at that time, 220-230, throwing punches. Cashman trying to chop our heads off, going after Eddie Jackman, you know. Right. Eddie Jackman had a hatred about him in Boston, He and he loved driving them nuts. And we'd say, Eddie, be quiet, please. <laughs> His brother was at one game. Roley Jackman was a minor from Sudbury. Eddie got in a brawl. Fans were cheering, kill Jackman, kill Jackman, and, Roley was up in the stands in Boston, turned to one fan and said, shut up, that's my brother. He says, you're a Jackman? He says, yeah. Reached over and grabbed Roley Jackman by the hair. Roley had a hairpiece. The guy grabbed the hairpiece, lifted the hairpiece up. Roley decked the guy. Next period, Roley's in the, with the police in our dress. So he said, what are you doing? Decked the guy. He yelled at you, Eddie. <laughs> we had just a good camaraderie. Our fans were good. So we just a closeness. So. Yeah, we were there. We were right there. You know, it's interesting because I'm looking, you know, you're talking about from a team standpoint, you mentioned how close you were. You guys had 10 players 
with double-digit scoring on this squad. Now, it wasn't your best year from a goal-scoring standpoint, but you still got 15 goals. You got Stemkowski with 11, McGregor, Russo, Fairburn, Kachuk, Park, Gilbert, Hadfield, and Jean Rattel. And Hadfield and Rattel and Gil- Gilbert are 50 goals, 46 and 43. So that that's some big goal scoring. And the fact that you have Stemkowski with 11 and everybody else in between, that's some great depth on this team. Well, it's, it's a very good point. But you're not a team unless each player realizes the other guy's just as important. And that was the beauty of our team. John Rattel, again, he was the John Belleville of the United States for us. The classic, classic, classy man. I told you, when I got to New York, I wasn't supposed to make the team after the first year. They had me rooming with the minor leagues. I'd scored one goal that year when I got traded to New York. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was going to make the team. In training camp, I told you, who am I going to hit? i got to make this team. So I ran John Rattel, nicest guy in the world. He decked me. <laughs> I go back to my room. I'm devastated. One is I failure, get knocked down by the nicest guy. He knocked on the door and said, Teddy, you keep doing that. I said, Johnny, I'm embarrassed. I said, I got one goal last year. And he said, Teddy, it was a beauty. Keep mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah. So he included me of all the guys. I walked out of that dress. We played Boston next game. I remember Johnny McKenzie used to be the, the disturber in Boston. I remember sitting on top of him. He tried to scratch my eyes out. And, and he, I went nuts. And he said, you're on drugs. You're trying to kill me. <laughs> After John Rattel said, we need that, Teddy. So I had a role to play. I didn't have to score 50 goals. And right. So that's the closeness. And that's what a championship team does. They get close together and everybody's got a role to play. Even the guys that come up from the minors play for injured guys and you got to let them play their role and you got to make them welcome. Well, and that's the thing. I'm just looking at your stats. Like you mentioned your first season with New York, 25 or uh, 17 games, zero goals and three assists. So you can see how you're kind of on the edge. Then in 70, 71, you get 20 goals and 38 points, and you get 36 points in 72. And that's kind of like you mentioned, even though you guys were the, the the checking you know line, you guys are still notching a lot of points here, which probably is one of the reasons why the team did so well. Because if, the, if you said if Bruce McGregor was on your line as well? Yes. So he's got 19 goals. You've got 15. Stemkowski's got 11. I mean, that's not a bad uh, output, 45 goals for the checking line for the course of the season. That's every second game the checking line is scoring a goal. And give those two guys credit. Murdoch and Stemmer killed penalties. They never killed penalties? They did. Oh, wow. There you go. Bruce McGregor is one of the best defense. Stemkowski is one of the best face-off men. So, you know, they all had a role. And if I had 15, I remember the year of 26 because that was a lot of goals. And, uh, but, uh, but those other guys, no, it, it was, uh, you get to a point in your life and you look back and say, wow, we were that close and we didn't make it. And it could have been John Rattel's broken ankle, whatever it was. That's probably what it was. We just got one behind them. And, and then a guy named Bobby R took the puck and we let us touch it in the last game. So when did Rattel break his uh, ankle? It was about three or four weeks before it was a shot from Dale Rolf broke his ankle and that turned at the end of the year, we had to tighten up a lot. Bobby Russell played a lot as a centerman, but he, Bobby wasn't a big guy, but he was a winner because he came from Montreal. Uh, but he just didn't have the size to go against the Boston. Like Boston had some big – he had Esposito, you know him well now. He, he was a big man. Kenny Hodge was a big man. Eh? Oh, wow. And so we just didn't have enough depth at that time. We were close, and we won the fifth game in Boston Garden, which – 
one of those things where you see you want to go to that <laughs> yeah well let, let's let's wait a second here because the, the the i just i'm figuring this out i had no idea so jean rattel breaks his ankle and i'm looking here he played 63 games so he's out for the end of the season he only plays six playoff games and gets zero goals so you went all the way to the final without your best player or one of your best top two or three players not even on the team right and worse than that he was one of our emotional leaders right he's your teaser he's your locker room leader he's a guy that's not a rah-rah he's just there for you and we knew it hurt him not to be able to perform so you're now you're trying to make sure he's okay and uh, yeah but at that time, even with that, we still thought we could win. Well, you had such depth, but also, too, he's obviously doing his best to come back because if he breaks his ankle, you know, four to six weeks later, he's back on the ice, which I'm sure was way too premature, which is probably why he wasn't able to score any goals. But he probably wanted to be with the team and do what he could. Yeah, and he was a slight man as it was, so his role wasn't to go in the corners. He wasn't one of those the centermen that went in the corners and got the puck. Most of his goal was sitting up broad, but it was inside the blue line, not from behind the net. Yeah, that was part of the whole thing. But that time, you, you weren't allowed to think of that injury. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So your first round of the playoffs is against the Montreal Canadiens, uh, who, by the way, are the Stanley Cup champions of 1971. So... Do you remember anything about that series? The Rangers won four four games to two, but once again, you're you're taking on the the defending champs in the very first round. Yeah, and that that's when you take a look at their lineup. I mean, you you got Cornwallis, Lafleur, Lemaire, Shot. Then on defense, when you had you know, you've got uh, Savard and Robinson, and they could skate. The Montreal form ice was like glass. Mm. So when you went out there. And they all dressed so appropriately, shirt and tie. It was like a dinner night, you know, <laughs> everything else. And when you went out there, you're, in, I mean, all kids, we knew what the Montreal Forum was all about. We knew who to, to Blake was. And we knew who was uh, Jean Beliveau and Bernie Jeffreyon. So when you skate on the ice, you're in awe right away. And they come flying. And their fans are just as rabid in, in the building as the New York Rangers. But again, if you look at some of the goal scorers, we had one guy that scored the goal, Ron Harris, shotgun Harry, we call him. He was about our fifth or sixth defense, and he was built like a cigarette machine with a head on top. He had, Chris, the first camp I was at, his arms were so big, they couldn't put a needle in his arm. And Harry didn't say it. He scored, and we Harry, Harry got one. Then somebody else got one. Then our goaltenders got one. And we're competing in Montreal to open up in the first series. Then you got your media there you got dick irvin and meekers around and all these guys i'm going oh my god danny gallon we're in the hockey hall of fame for life playing against these guys and we're competitive well yeah and you're you're looking at this roster here like you mentioned frank mahovlich yvonne cornway jacques lemaire pete mahovlich lafleur tremblay tardif i mean claude the rose is scoring 20 goals for them for sakes they've got quite the uh 
quite the gang uh, against you guys here. Well, yeah, and there's Scrabbers too. That Tarnoff was a good picture of me, him on him and I on the ice. I fought him, and you know, it, we just did it. How we did, it. like like Frank Mahovlich, we were told, don't wake him up. He's one of the greatest goal scorers ever, but he had a tendency just kind of doze on you. So before the game, Emil Francois would say, don't anybody hit Frank. Don't wake him up. Oh. <laughs> so when he came up near we just let him skate up and down the wing. He had a pet turtle when he was in Toronto. <laughs> Anyhow, and the turtle was faster than him. <laughs> then Stemkowski and I thought we'd be smart. We hit him. He got three goals in one of the games. Emil said, I told you, don't hit him. <laughs> <laughs> don't wake him up. Yeah. Well, then uh, the, 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 the next round, you guys are up against the Chicago Blackhawks. And that one, you sweep the Blackhawks four games to zero. So you got some real momentum. But Chicago Stadium was, was a tough one to play in, too, though, wasn't it? Uh, it was one of the classic old buildings, old, old wooden uh, building with the biggest old organ ever in life. And uh, just it, just the whole atmosphere when you went in there. And we dressed in the basement with all the rats because it was very small. We had dogs downstairs chasing the rats away. <laughs> And they'd play the music before the game, that old organ. Here comes the Hawks, the mighty Blackhawks. And you'd skate up and you get, you had to walk up the steps and you get level with the ice. And you look at the other end of the rink and there come the Hawks. And the people are going crazy. And they had a tendency to skate in our end and everything else. The atmosphere is unbelievable. But what Emil Francis did, he wanted to beat them so bad. He took us to different little steakhouses. Emil was very loyal to local town people. He one guy who owned a restaurant was really hurting. He said, come on, guys, we're going for dinner. And we we're allowed to have a few drinks and a few laughs. So on the bench, Emil Francis was challenging the coach, uh, Billy Ray. And we were a close team. Eh? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we started on the road on that one or not. But yeah, to win four straight, it just it, things just flew by. We were just Everything was just clicking for us. Well, in the first two games, too, you played uh, on the road. So you came out of Chicago with two wins. So you had some momentum there. And that's the thing. I think for any team, even nowadays, if you're playing the Stanley Cup champs in the first round and you beat them, you probably get a lot of you know momentum from that. Well, you do. When you play on the road, that's where you definitely need all your lines playing because your main line is going to get the top checker and the top defenseman all the time. Right. So you know they're going to be shut down. And you remember that old Chicago rink? It was about 15 feet shorter than the rest of the NHL rinks. So a guy like Bobby Hall, he came across – center ice it was like the blue line he let it go head first you know pucks at goalies heads just to get them to stand on their toes next shot he come down put it on the ice but that old rink like that you didn't have a lot of room to move and you had a guy like makita who's dirty and chippy in every house and had good goaltender i think s was there s was fans were rabid in every house so the first game you knew you're gonna first period every game first 10 minutes you really did get run because playing at home in those days everybody was 10 feet taller so you had guys like Pitt Martin. He was chippy. Nestoranko was there for a while. They had some tough guys there that at home, they laid it into you. Going on the road, they weren't as aggressive. Was there like a lot of uh, like fights during the playoffs back then? Were you still kind of doing that sort of a role or the playoffs is a little bit, uh, a little bit less hectic because people are trying to just not stay out of the box? You try to stay out of the box, but it still is rough. You get more pushing and shoving. Uh, those are the good fights where you get the, the linesman in between you and you can lean over the guy's shoulder and really yap at him because yeah. you know you're not, not going to get punched. Uh, the worst thing I told you always in hockey for, the, for us as a, a player, the worst words you want to hear when you're in a scrum, when the referee yells, let him go. 
uh, then you got a problem. So, yeah, no, I can't remember all, but it, that was hard hitting. Because you got to remember that rink was small, and you got hit lots, and the boards were shorter and everything else. So at that, that time, you didn't know you, you had to. I don't know. I think Maggie was there then. Magnuson, uh, he was there. A guy named Cliff Coral. Yeah, one of my wor worst beatings I took from Cliff Coral. I got him marked down as a fighting. So no, it was it was tough, rough. And then next game, the third game, when they came there, we knew they were going to be aggressive, and that's when you need your on the road. You need your goaltenders mm -hmm. right away, and we did have there. Everything just was falling into place. It was just going along smoothly, and it was happening so fast. I don't even realize we believed we were there. You know, we didn't have a chance to even analyze it around this series, the next series. You know, it's amazing because. Just looking at the stats here, once again, too, you mentioned like Bobby Hull. Bobby Hull and Dennis Hull had 80 goals between the two of them. Like, that's crazy. And then you also got, like you mentioned, Keith Magnuson, two goals, but 200 penalty minutes. And the, only, the only guy close had 60 penalty minutes. So, oh, sorry, Jerry Carr, I've had 95. So they got some real tough guys on their squad, too. Well, Jerry Carr was a guy that uh, I fought Maggie a few times. He's on my highlight reels because uh, we were taught uh, go after Maggie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he he was uh, he was volatile, and he was a president of the company. He was a bright guy, but on the ice he just lost it. But uh, yeah, he was uh, in Chicago. Uh, I ran the goaltender by accident, Terry Desjardins. <laughs> you just didn't mean to, right? Corab grabbed me. Yeah, yeah. Corab grabbed me, and luckily Tim Hort was my teammate. Put his arms around both of us. We couldn't throw a punch. All we did was yap at each other. <laughs> And I heard many things that I was a homer. I couldn't play on the road. Went back to Madison Square Garden. And we got into the fight there. That's when uh, I said, Stemmer, I got to do something. He's going to come after me. It was in the headlines of the paper, King Kong rematch versus Urban. The garden had signs in the upper deck rematch. Urban, Korab, Stemmer said, what are you going to do, Toshko? I said, I got to fight him. I said, but he's too big. I said, I'll shoot the puck at his head. You jump in and help me. So you got it. <laughs> First shift I go, they put core up, and he's just looking right at me. Shot the puck at his head at center ice, dropped my gloves, had my balance, got him against the boards, and he took two punches, put his knuckles into my head. Stemmer tapped me on the shoulder. He was holding on to Stemmer. He said, Toshko, let's get the hell out of here. That guy's tough. <laughs> <laughs> that was the old core. Up. Yeah, they were tough, Maggie. But we also knew that, you know, you'll see in one of the other series, they knock us out the following year, I think it is. We took them lightly. And – our game plan again was to run Magnuson, and uh, he slid out head first to block a shot on Brad Park's power play shot, broke his jaw. He was out for the series. We lost four straight. Jeez, yeah, yeah, you underestimated. You only get so close. Yeah, people talk about getting the Stanley Cup. We thought we'd be back next year. Never got a sniff. Yeah, I remember you said that once. I think of the one year. I think Vancouver lost to New York or something, and it was like, well, they'll get them next year. And you're like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So then you guys go up against the Bruins, like we said. And that series, you end up losing four games to two, which is weird because they must have been watching because right out of the gate, you guys play two games in Boston and, and you lose them both. But, but by one goal, six to five for Boston and two to one for Boston. How is that for a team in the Stanley Cup finals dropping two games in a row, but so close? Well, at that time, Emil was smart. He took us away. He put us in Fitchburg, Massachusetts for a good week. And we had films and workouts and films and workouts and a couple of good team parties. We came very close. And we knew we had to stand up to them, okay? So our accomplishment was not to be run out of the building and try to win. And we hung in there pretty good. 
and we stood up to them. Guys fought back, and uh, it gave us some confidence that we knew we still had a chance because we were supposed to get blown out mm-hmm. against Boston. Especially you had you had the one line you had Esposito, Haji, and Cash Cashman, right? And uh, those guys were good. Then you got a guy named Bob Oyor that's even who controlled the game at that time. And we were taught we got to hit or, and we did. So like Stemmer and I are on the ice, we got to hit them. And Bobby could skate like the wind, but we were told put it in Bobby's corner and go hit him. We'd put it in Bobby's corner and we'd go hit him. We'd shake hands with each other, Stemmer and I. We'd turn around, who's leading the puck up the ice? Bobby Orr. So, okay, Emil says, that's not working. Shoot it in the other guy's corner, hit that guy. We did that, turn around, there goes Bobby up the ice. Bobby had a way of changing the whole hmm. whole game plan. The first game, it was defensive. Where in the hell's Orr? <laughs> like, where's Waldo? Right. Because he was so fast. And, like, and everybody says in hockey, hit that guy. Try to hit Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky knew where you were going before you knew where you're going. Mm-hmm. The young kids today, they know where they're going. So with Orr, you get close to him. He already knew which way your body can go. It's just hard to yeah. tee off on him. We had tried to. So he changed the game a lot. So then what happened was in the last game, we were able to get some lines against Haji and Espo. But then the other lines didn't pick up the scoring. Mm. Okay, And ironically, who beat us in the game and hurt us the most was Ace Bailey, the guy that unfortunately died in the plane crash with the 9-11. That's right. He was in the 9-11, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. They think he might be. Like, he yelled, what is it, get a roll, let's roll, or something like that. So those guys were – so we were very competitive after the big line. But what did Ace Bailey do, though? How did Ace Bailey hurt hurt the Rangers? He scored the goal that beat us, that 2-1 game. Ah, uh, gotcha. He's not a goal scorer. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And gotcha. he came in from the blue line of all things. He made one of those moves of a lifetime through your legs, up your butt, around, around, and he scored. And it took the steam right out of us. I said, what's he doing? We had everybody shut down. And that gave them some life. Yeah, because once again, just looking at their roster that they had here, and you mentioned Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito. Esposito, 66 goals that season. But here's the key. Bobby Orr, 80 assists. Nobody's getting 80 assists back in those days. That's insane. Yeah, and he was a defensive defenseman. I mean, right. He, was, he, was, he could skate like the wind, and he was strong. But he knew where to pass the puck. He was just a smart – he changed the game of hockey, in my mind, uh, altogether. And he gave those guys a lot of confidence. And then Espo – Whatever did as a big guy, you couldn't move him from the front of the net. I mean, he just stood there. The guys couldn't move him, and he's got you know, a lot of goals and uh, and a yappy guy. So you wanted to beat him more than anybody because he was he was a first team and he yapped a lot. So now Bobby was the difference in that series. Now you're going to get to the fifth game. Yeah, I'm here right some now. Point there. Yeah, you guys are down three games to one, and you go back into the Boston Garden. And, uh, and you end up pulling out a 3-2 victory. But what are your memories of that? Well, your grandpa Jake was there. Hmm. We go into Boston Garden, and the worst thing you see on TV nowadays for the championship game where they walk in the Stanley Cup, and they have all the hoopla with the guy with the white gloves, walks in with the Stanley Cup, and they put it in the Boston dressing room before the game. Really? And we know it's there. Yeah, they've already had placemats made up, Stanley Cup champions. Oh, shit. Wow. So now we're going, what are we going to do? And we came out flying. I'm very proud to say, I, got, I think I got the assist on Bobby Russo's the, the third goal. And I was so proud how well we played as a team. And with Bobby getting the goal, because he was the throw-in guy, he got one. And to win 3-1, that was the proudest moment 
sitting with your grandpa, taking the bus back. I think we took the bus back to New York. Us, what we had accomplished in the garden, doing so well, and they had to get the cup out of there. We spoiled their party. Hmm. But then you got to get up again, and we didn't for that last game. Just didn't click for us. That was kind of your final uh, your final stand to get that last game. Yes, it was, because the fans went nuts. And we knew we could play against Boston. We could play tough against them. And we knew we had the guys that were scoring. It just got to a point, a couple of shifts. Bobby Orr, again, set up cash one time, took the puck another, a couple other times. And all of a sudden, the game's going on and on. All of a sudden, it's near the end of the game, and it's over with. Worst feeling in my life to this day, I still remember it. Worst point in my career, I do not hold the Stanley Cup. I see it. I go to function where the Stanley Cup is there. I will not touch it. Mm. It's a tradition. To watch those guys skate around Madison Square Garden, Johnny Busick holding that cup is the most gut-wrenching thing I'll never forget as long as I live. To go in the dressing room, we didn't have a beer in the dressing room. We didn't know how to lose. And then the fans after basically challenged the, the wives to fights. They were so mad at us. So that hurt. It hurt the fans, hurt us as a team, as a team. And then we thought, okay, next year didn't happen. Let me ask you this because something I always think about as you know, watching teams and Stanley Cups and stuff, would you have rather lost in Boston Garden to save that? I don't know embarrassment in in, in Madison Square Garden, or was it better to spoil their party that one night and then lose in your home building? Which is the better fate? Oh, as a team, to spoil their party in the Boston Garden still is a highlight of my <laughs> career, but to lose at home. I wouldn't have known that feeling until after, because I thought I'd get, I thought we'd have another chance. Yeah, we knew what to do next time with injuries and errors. We just do no. When you get a, like, there's not a lot of rivalries anymore because there's so many players switching team to team and so many teams now. It's hard to get going against each other. But a Boston, Montreal, Chicago, they, all those guys, those were rivalries. You hate each other. You wouldn't travel on the bus with you. They'd fight on the trains in the early days. You know, Montreal and New York, to take the same train. They'd fight, you know. It was a hatred. It was a hatred after I quit the game. I came back to Winnipeg. I did some some radio. John Ferguson was the general manager for the Winnipeg Jets. He would not talk to me, acknowledge me, nothing. He hated me, <laughs> and I didn't like him. But he was tougher, so I didn't say much. But now, now to beat Boston – that was, yeah, that's an honor. I mean, they're a good franchise. Look at them today. They're a good franchise, and we did that. So I don't hang down. It's just the emptiness of watching that Stanley Cup go by the bench, and fans are shocked, we're shocked, and the Boston guys are celebrating. And I knew some of them personally, and I'd say, oh, you son of a – I'd ran you and I'd run you again if I could, you know. So yeah. that, just a good old bad memory. <laughs> Last few things here, obviously – such such a great career that you've had and been in hockey as an analyst and, and commentator and all these things. Is there a case, obviously Gretzky, we say, you know, pretty much as a whole, as a fan, is the greatest player of all time. Is there a case that Bobby Orr is the greatest player of all time? It's so subjective and what does that even mean? But you mentioned Bobby Orr and how good he was and being on the ice with them and how he changed the game. Is there a case he could be the best of all time? Well, naturally, I'm biased. I have a lot of respect for a lot of guys. and uh, But Bobby Orr, to me, was a phenom when he was 14 or 15. You didn't know a lot about him until you saw him play. And when you skated on the ice, when he was bow-legged, basically, and he had a short haircut, and you look, what the heck is this kid? And all of a sudden, he started skating, and he'd go by you. You couldn't knock him down. 
He was in the right position most time, but the biggest thing was he could win. He could win in the strangest different ways. We were setting up a puck, you know, getting a goal. He was a rock for them. Where he changed the game was he started bringing the puck out of his end. We didn't have to worry about that. All we had to do in our day was just pick up your winger, go back. Well, all of a sudden, you pick up your winger and the defenseman's going by you. Mm. And you think you got him. He leads it back the other way. Then the other guy started to get a little more brave. And they started to change how they came out of their end. Scotty Bowen was one of the best at that because he had J.C. Trombley and he had Robinson Savard. He started bringing their defensemen up the ice. Gotcha. The only guy before that was a guy named uh, Doug Harvey. Mm. He was one of the original guys that came up the ice. But they told him, get back there, sit on your rocking chair and don't go upstairs. So Bobby, for me, and his attitude and what he meant to that team as a, as a teammate, he was just a real good one. I told you before, it wasn't for him. We wouldn't have raised $100,000 here in Winnipeg for one of our teammates to try to commit suicide. Right. Bobby came in. Wayne Gretzky came in. We raised because of Bobby. I had a lot of respect for him. He got you know, screwed by a lot of the owners and by Al Eagleson. Right people step in. Now Bobby is a, to me, he's what he was as a hockey player, just quality, good guy. You want to talk to a guy like that. But I wish I could have played with him. But now he, to me, he was. I know there's a lot of guys. Gretzky changed from the offensive side, but the game's changed now too. At that time, I mean, we didn't have that many. He didn't have that many penalties. We didn't have the penalty minutes like the guys do now. Power plays and that now, so different game. So I would go with Gretzky. I love Crosby as a person and uh, and as a hockey player. But Gretzky would be the next guy who would change. And Messi changed in a lot of ways too. But or for everything, offense, defense, team, off the ice. Franchise-wise, you know, I just to me he's still special. And how about for the New York Rangers? Who who was who was the best player on your squad, or or your or you you know your favorite player? Maybe it's the same. Well, at that time, Brad was he was our key guy. Well, the difference between Brad and, and Bobby Orr was Brad fought a lot more, and Brad got hit a lot more than Bobby Orr did. Mm. And Brad took it and stood up for it. So he to me was key in our Eddie Jackman in goal. He was the first guy I played with basically, Jerry Cheever, but Eddie was the feistiest go-get guy. I really like playing with him, uh, as having him as a teammate. Sean Rattel, just as the quality of how you live your life and how you be a professional athlete, that will always remain in my mind. So when, when you're playing guys, you don't recognize because you think you might be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> because at that time, hey, Teddy got a big goal for us, you know, or Stemmer would have hit. You know, well, you were one of the guys, though. That's the thing, very important to that squad. Yeah, well, it was. I didn't realize it, Chris. You've always said to me, I was there. I didn't realize. I'm reading a lot of stuff now, and I realized, geez, I forgot I did that. I loved that team. I loved the guys. I loved the role they played. I played with them. Uh, meal tr I loved the town. I loved the atmosphere. It was the epitome of, for me of playing a professional sport in the biggest arena in the world, Madison Square Garden, and I was there. That's pretty neat for me. Very much so. Especially here we are on the eve of your 79th birthday, and you still have such great memories of, of this time and, and playing with this team. I mean, I'd have to say, I mean, overall, how do you encapsulate your career? Are you, are you happy with all that you accomplished and proud of, of, of this mark that you left on the Rangers? Yeah, I'm proud of the mark I left on the Rangers. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of some of the things I did with the Special Olympic people, the handicapped people in New York. They give me an offer, to, you know, a chance to be part of that. So that was important to me. You know, I, I still feel valid. Is that such a word? Yeah. In New York, I don't Winnipeg. I don't in LA. They treat me. But New York, it's a, a special feeling. You know what? 
I was part of something special here where they expect a lot from you. So I'm very proud of that fact. And I was going to say to you, as I know you want to end, could I play today? All athletes, I'd put the skates on in a minute. But you know why I couldn't play today, Chris? Because the players on the bench have those iPads that you have to follow the game with. And I can't work a computer. I wouldn't be able to sit on the bench and follow what happened to me. <laughs> so, yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm at an age right now. I'm, I'm grateful for everything, family, everything, people I played with. Uh, and now when I look back, I said, you know what? I did do some things, and that's pretty neat. Well, the thing is, too, with your, with your goal-scoring totals, if you played in the modern era, you'd be making $10 million a year. I mean, 20 goals a season for a guy who can also – check the check you in the corner that's that's a big money player it's a power forward yeah. you were like the prototype of a power forward yeah i know a lot of people that say what do you think of the money i said well i think I, i'm watching what guys are signing for and not everybody like yourself can live up to a million two million three they can't do it they go to a certain level and they level off the superstars the guys who play and make big money they're good at what they do i really respect them for all that stuff there but for me if I look at the play, Don Basie, a very good lawyer and well-known guy, he ex extrapolated years ago. He thought I'd be about 3.7 million. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last two questions for you. What's your favorite goal that you ever scored? Is there one that stands out for you that you remember it like it was only yesterday? I, I would think the overtime goal brings a lot to me. It'll be the second or third goal I got for the New York Rangers against the Los Angeles Kings, where I was traded from L.A. to New York, and I got a hat trick that game. And a fan took a picture of me, bent over, Dennis DeJordi was in goal, and I slapped her to the top corner, right where Mummy cooks, keeps a cookie jar for my hat trick. <laughs> and I've got that picture hanging in there in Madison Square Garden, and I just got the ticket stub of a fan was selling it for $7.50. He was at the game. He didn't know he scored. And I got that. And that brings back a lot of nice memories for me to say against my old team in the garden. And I, I got a slapper. I didn't have to bend over and put the puck on the edge and roof it. I slapped it to the top corner. That makes me feel good. <laughs> All right. Last question for you. It's a story that you've told a few times, but I want to hear it again in as much detail as you can remember. Do you remember the night in Oklahoma City when you were playing for the Bla the Blazers. The Blazers was Oklahoma City. What's the name of the team you played? Yeah. yeah. Did, that you almost got in a fight with Harley Race. Well, it, where it was, it was actually in Minneapolis, Chris. Because <laughs> remember, they had Harley Race. And who was his partner? That little His partner was Harley Race. And there's another guy he wrestled with all the time. Could be Dick Murdoch or somebody. I'm not sure, but go ahead. No, no, no. It was a little unknown guy. Anyhow. We were, I was with Joey Watson, who just called the other day from Philadelphia. Hey, Moose, remember the old days? I said, yeah, you remember that night we went to that bar and we had a few too many beers? I decided, I said, that might, guy might be a wrestler. And he had the blonde hair and no neck and a, I think a turtleneck. And where it was, I said, I'm going to challenge him to a fight. <laughs> and uh, one of the bouncers came over and said, I don't. I think you should do that. Last week he was in Winnipeg and there was a snowstorm and a car in front of him drove into the ditch and flipped. He flipped it back on its wheels. I said, he did. <laughs> I, said, I think I'll leave that guy alone. <laughs> I just kind of, I think I just kind of walked away, but I'll never forget the name. It's hard to race the other guy. I'll remember the name when I see him, but that was in, that was in Minneapolis, the old uh, 
first year in Oklahoma in Boston farm team. Yeah, well, you, you probably made the, the right choice on that, but you put Holly race on a pair of skates. You would have taken them for sure. Well, look what happened to Jesse, the body. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He was holding onto the rail the whole time. <laughs> well, dad, it's great talking to you and, uh, and uh, happy birthday. And what a great way to celebrate it by some of these amazing old school memories. And I think your career is outstanding, very proud. And it's great to be able to now, like you said, now, to go online and see all of this stuff and watch the fights and read the stats. And I've been following along with all your stories by just typing in a couple names here and there and some dates and we're getting all the information. So it's very cool to kind of reminisce about this with you. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks for bringing back memories of my life because I see you living a lot of, and you're going to see in these stories too. We're privileged, no doubt about it. But if you were my lawyer, what would be your percentage, you think? That's 15%, isn't it? That's what it is. <laughs> But once again, I, I'm not at that level. That's why uh, I'll contact you with Barry Bloom next time okay. for your big return. <laughs> yeah, thanks for everything, Chris. These are great memories of this time of my life. I, uh, it's special. We're, we're privileged people to live, live our dreams. Thanks, Dad.